Start with introducing uh, Dr. Peter and Hunter first, and uh, we'll request them to start on with the pharmacy course. That uh, so to start with uh, introduction for Dr. Peter. Uh, he had uh, had a successful career spanning more than 26 years, uh, working with major investment banks in Australia and UK. Uh, throughout his career, he has been consistently uh, rated among the top commodity analysts. Uh, and he is considered amongst one of the most knowledgeable experts on base metals, iron ore, gold, and coal uh, the current uh, environment. Uh, on P- on Hunter, uh, he has experience as a mining analyst for almost 18 years. Uh, he started out in 1990 as a geologist in South Africa. Uh, initially, he was with Anglo American, and then did years uh, before moving to Australia. Uh, he has actually researched over 80 companies, uh, including uh, junior as well as diversified majors, and has uh, several awards uh, to his name. Um, I'll request Dr. Peter uh, to start uh, with your initial commentary, and uh, probably after that we have a Q&A session. Uh, over to you, Dr. Peter. Thank you very much for the session. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for taking the time. In these difficult circumstances, to uh, hear our views, uh, the report uh, on which uh, Ritesh uh, based this call was a quarterly uh, review that we published uh, uh, on the 6th of April. Uh, so just uh, getting on for 10 days ago now, uh, and uh, I think the uh, themes that really Uh, I would like to emphasise from that report are the firstly the greatest challenge for us as analysts, and I'm sure for you as investors, is uh, of course the magnitude of demand destruction that the uh, government restrictions, uh, social distancing, uh, quarantine, and lockdown have placed on global demand. And uh, only yesterday, the IMF came out with uh, its projection for 2020, which I'm sure some of you have seen. Uh, we're there forecasting uh, a outright contraction in global GDP of three uh, percent, compared to a forecast increase of 3.3 percent as recently as uh, January. So. The magnitude of the demand shock uh, is, I think, apparent to all of us. Although uh, the IMF was very careful to identify the uh, uncertainty element uh, that applies to their forecasts, which could uh, either see them uh, exceeded on the downside uh, or uh, possibly reduced. Somewhat, but their clear steer is that the bias of risk, uh, even in such a negative forecast for 2020, uh, remains to the downside. Uh, their expectation is that uh, the recovery will come in 2021. Ours is that uh, uh, there will be a more uh, formidable recovery in the second half of the year. But of course, that too is subject to considerable uncertainty as to both the magnitude of that rebound uh, and also the uh, lingering effect of the uh, shutdowns, which do appear to be uh, continuing. Only yesterday, Australia announced a further extension of its restrictions. I see India's done the same, South Africa the same. And we're expecting the same here in the UK. So uncertainty is everywhere, uh, both the duration and the magnitude uh, of the demand shock. But equally, uh, we're trying to navigate uh, a very uncertain environment in respect of supply response. And even within metals or commodities that I know are of importance and interest to you as Indian investors. 
we're seeing some quite striking uh, mismatches between uh, the impact on supply of concentrate, particularly in the uh, copper and zinc markets, compared to uh, the impact on uh, production and supply of uh, refined metal. And this is showing up in falling spot treatment charges as a greater level of uh, concentrate uh, supply is taken out of the market relative to uh, production. Everywhere uh, we expect a fall in uh, refined consumption, uh, particularly of the non-ferrous metals. Uh, the biggest fall we expect to see in absolute terms is in aluminium, uh, but also in zinc and copper in quite large uh, absolute percentage falls of between uh, almost uh, 6% for zinc and about 3 
and it's also evident uh, between bauxite and uh, or, uh, 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 alumina uh, stroke aluminium, not to the same degree as in uh, copper and zinc, but uh, there is a growing risk of that uh, mismatch uh, also emerging, uh, depending on how the COVID-19 virus restrictions play out. The other area that we are very cautious about uh, increasingly uh, given uh, the pressure on, uh, recent pressure on pricing that, that uh, we've been both expecting and are now seeing is in uh, the thermal coal market. Uh, the thermal coal market has been caught in a particularly uh, strong and persistent a series of negative demand and supply pressures in our view for well over a year now uh, and COVID-19 has done nothing uh, to alleviate these. In fact, it's, if anything, uh, gone the other way and intensified uh, some of these pressures. One of those I've already alluded to uh, has been the sharp decline in natural gas prices, uh, which is both a pipeline gas and an LNG gas effect uh, because uh, the coal uh, natural gas spread has increasingly favoured uh, substitution of coal uh, by natural gas where combined cycle power stations are in a technical position to do so. Uh, we've also seen uh, a significant rise in LNG capacity in Asia uh, which is, I think, uh, a major overhang in the market. And Russia and the US have been competing aggressively in uh, Central and Western Europe uh, for market share in the natural gas market. Both LNG and uh, pipeline gas uh, compete here uh, for uh, their share of a market at the expense of coal. Of course, we've also had uh, longer-term uh, environmental compliance issues, which have been uh, most notable uh, in Western Europe, and uh, we've seen a clear and irreversible loss of market share of coal-fired uh, power generation in some of the major economies of uh, Europe. Uh, and I think that uh, we do expect that trend to reassert or uh, be intensified uh, once some degree of normalisation in uh, global, uh, global uh, economies uh, starts to take place. So you have long-term structural erosion of coal, one of coal's major historic markets. You have growing competition from renewables uh, in many markets in Asia, not least in, in, in India, uh, to add to that. And, of course, as I say, the short-term pricing pressure from uh, the natural gas market. The other major problem that COVID-19 uh, virus restrictions have uh, challenged the thermal coal market with are, of course, uh, related to supply issues. Increasingly, it's evident, I think, that uh, both India and China, the two largest consumers of uh, seaborne thermal coal are increasingly favouring domestic production at the expense of imports as uh, they struggle with either the aftermath in the case of China or the immediate effects of in, in India of this, uh, of this virus. Uh, underlying generation demand uh, both in China in February in particular and in the first half of March, but uh, I see also in India has also fallen sharply. And as a consequence, stocks of both domestic and imported coal are now uh, quite readily available for uh, the coal-fired uh, utilities. Uh, in addition, the fall in the cost curves of uh, the major exporters to the seaborne market, uh, the Australians, the Indonesians, the South Africans and the Colombians have all fallen uh, as a consequence of currency depreciation and of course the impact of uh, weaker 
uh, oil and natural gas prices. So uh, there is little incentive uh, for these major exporters to rapidly cut back uh, at prices that prevailed coming into the COVID-19 crisis. I think the risk is growing that as demand shocks ripple through the seaborne market, uh, that even with falling costs, uh, prices uh, start to probe lower to find out where uh, the major seaborne producers would be prepared to curtail supply to bring about some degree of balance uh, in, in, in the market. At the present time, uh, my uh, colleagues in Wood Mackenzie are forecasting a 10 million tonne drop in Indian imports of uh, thermal coal in 2020, uh, with the added caveat that uh, that could increase to uh, around uh, 15 million and a further 5 to 10 million tonne drop uh, in China. So uh, this is a very real problem for the exporters to deal with. And I think one of the ways in which this does get mediated has to be in a protracted period of uh, of wheat prices. So again, this is a place that we think you need to be uh, very careful of uh, in, in this particular environment. So where do we think you're best positioned uh, for what is a very challenging environment? Uh, our conclusions in this report are, uh, and this might be surprising to you given what has happened to uh, uh, steel production in, in India, uh, but uh, our view is that uh, iron ore, particularly seaborne iron ore prices, uh, will be a lot more resilient than the market uh, expects currently. And even metallurgical coal, which has clearly been impacted by the blast furnace curtailments in India uh, and in Brazil and in Western Europe, uh, is showing uh, considerable resilience around uh, that top end of the cost curve. So, in sharp contrast to uh, the uh, levels of uh, uh, pricing that we've seen in, in the non-ferrous metals, where prices have probed well into uh, uh, lowered cost curves, in metallurgical coal at least, particularly premium product, even with lowered uh, cost curves to uh, marginal cost support around $130 a tonne, uh, so far, these prices have held uh, around that level. In iron ore, uh, the story is even stronger. Uh, prices at the moment, uh, I checked just before we came online, and on my screen I saw uh, a price of just uh, below $87 a tonne for spot uh, 62% uh, FE grade North China delivery uh, finds material. Uh, that compares with a contestable market marginal cost of around $73.50, even allowing for uh, the impact of a lower real and an Australian dollar and the fall in the uh, South African rand uh, uh, on the cost curve, and again the impact of uh, falling energy prices. So uh, this is uh, a very striking difference, uh, particularly in the iron ore market, and we do think a considerable part of the explanation for this, and it will continue to be, we think, very supportive of uh, a price difference between cost and uh, spot market uh, uh, support, is the fact that China is not only the world's largest steel market, but also, of course, the largest market for steel-making raw materials, and uh, is the price-setting market, the clearing market, for all types of iron ore products. And one of the more remarkable uh, events, if you like, of the last four months 
from a commodity market perspective has been uh, the ability of Chinese steel mills, glass and steel mills that is, to maintain uh, remarkably high levels of utilization rate, uh, notwithstanding a build-up in inventory uh, in the first quarter uh, because of both uh, more favorable financing conditions in, in, in China, which have been eased again in the last week, uh, which have meant the cost of carrying inventory is less burdensome to the steel mills, and therefore uh, it was uh, a relatively uh, simple choice, I think, between staying in production and uh, incurring, uh, rather than incurring the costs of uh, closure. Uh, I think in addition, uh, with a lot of the smaller EAF mills absent during this uh, first uh, three months, uh, we have seen uh, a growth in uh, glass furnace market share of the market, and we do think that that will probably be, if not permanent, then certainly uh, remain for uh, the rest of this year, because many of the EAFs, the smaller companies, uh, they're less well capitalized. They've, they've battled a shortage of scrap, uh, which is still a problem. And uh, they're also dealing with uh, the impact of uncertain electricity supplies um, during uh, the worst part of the uh, COVID-19 shutdown. So uh, blast furnaces were able to take market share during that first quarter. But we think they will hold on to some of this. We think that the inventory, the data is showing that inventory that built up in the first quarter is now coming down in all product types at a steady pace. It's still relatively high, but it's certainly significantly lower than it was uh, a month ago. And that trend is supporting reasonably good uh, prices for uh, rebar, uh, not great for HRC at this point, but uh, we still, even with iron ore at uh, the price it is and metallurgical coke and coal prices where they are, the majority of steel mills are making a positive margin. So we think this will continue to underpin demand uh, in China, the world's largest market, and go a long way towards offsetting uh, the impact of uh, uh, reduced glass furnace demand in other parts of the world. One of the features of uh, glass furnace uh, supply of iron ore in Brazil, uh, in Europe, and indeed in, in India, is of course the degree to which that is supplied, not from the seaborne market, but either from tide or domestic sources of supply or through the overland trade. And therefore, the demand hit uh, to the seaborne market from steel plant closures in other parts of the world has, in our view, uh, been less uh, dramatic than uh, the market was uh, previously fearing. Uh, a similar comment could be made about the U.S. market, which in any case is predominantly an EAS market rather than a blast furnace uh, market. But uh, there is domestic supply of iron ore in the U.S. and, uh, of course, there are overland imports from Canada uh, to supplement that. So the seaborne market, I wouldn't say, is entirely insulated from these uh, widening global demand shocks in steel, but it is to a very great extent protected from them by the sheer size uh, of China's steel market. And China, of course, has been uh, experiencing a significant decline in its export uh, steel uh, market uh, over the last few years. So uh, China, uh, the recovery in Chinese steel demand is overwhelmingly domestically orientated, and in our view, that is a further supportive factor. Uh, the other key point I've made here, before I just end on uh, with some brief comments about precious metals, uh, is that 
supply uh, of uh, quality uh, raw uh, material in the seaborne market in particular uh, has been impacted uh, in the first quarter, as it was indeed in the metallurgical coal market, by weather-related events in uh, Brazil, Australia and, and Canada. And since uh, the second quarter uh, began, we've also seen uh, approximately 18 million tonnes of non-weather-related uh, uh, production or delivery curtailments and restrictions in uh, the seaborne market uh, from India, from uh, South Africa, from Iran, and uh, uh, largely from Brazil through the temporary uh, suspension of uh, Vale's Malaysian uh, transshipment uh, facilities. I think the risk has to be growing too that uh, Brazil, uh, which is now uh, nearly shuttered all of its last steel-making capacity, uh, increasingly uh, there is a risk to Vale's uh, supply chain, uh, both in the south and uh, in the north. Uh, some of the highest areas of infection in Brazil are close to, uh, they're not in, but they're close to uh, the southern and northern uh, production and distribution uh, chains in Brazil. And, of course, support facilities both in the north and the south are in large urban areas which uh, are themselves vulnerable to a higher level of, uh, of infection. So we think the bias of risk on the supply side is for more, not less, disruption, even though China has bought back not all, but certainly a considerable portion of its own domestic production. That's impacting the pellet market and the concentrate market more than the fines or centrifuge market, and we're still seeing a strong bias towards premium products. So, all told, this still looks one of the key places we think uh, via uh, the majors, uh, as Hunter will tell you, uh, that we've been uh, recommending our clients to uh, seek protection and and. Uh, underpin uh, the prospect of uh, maintaining dividends and, and, and cash flow. Finally, uh, precious metals. We've been bullish uh, for over a year now on the gold market. I think events of the last four months have indicated and strongly reinforced uh, that uh, view, and the market has seen some unprecedented uh, events in the gold market, not least of which has been the highest ever level of uh, inflows into uh, physically backed gold exchange traded funds, both in the first quarter and in the first two weeks of April. Uh, the trend has, if anything, uh, accelerated uh, further. Uh, in addition, uh, we've seen quite considerable disruption in the gold market, which has seen a spread of somewhere between 30 and $50 between New York futures prices and uh, London-based uh, spot prices uh, uh, emerge. And this has something to do with the disruptive effect on either refined production out of Switzerland or the distribution chain uh, for gold, uh, bars, and, and, and bullion, which is very heavily dependent on uh, uh, on air traffic, which of course is uh, very widely di disrupted. So uh, the, the uh, premiums in the gold market, I think, uh, in the futures market, uh, are uh, more representative of these disruptions, and in the, it's the trend in the spot price that is the real indicator of the underlying price trend in gold and of course that has risen from over $1,580 an ounce to $720 to $30 an ounce uh, in uh, a matter of, of months 
uh, indicating, as I was suggesting, very strong investment demand. And I think that uh, what has happened in terms of uh, the uh, policy decisions that have been taken by central banks around the world, particularly the Fed, of course, uh, the Bank of Japan, and uh, the ECB and the Bank of England, all point to a protracted period of, uh, uh, of very uh, aggressive quantitative easing, of near uh, record uh, low interest rates, uh, continuation of some negative interest rates as well, uh, all of which remove the opportunity cost of holding gold, but also increase the demand for safe haven asset and portfolio diversifier. So uh, we remain uh, very positive uh, about the gold market outlook and we think that you should look, uh, continue to uh, look seriously in, in this area. Finally, uh, in other precious metals, we've been bullish on palladium and rhodium uh, for a long time. Uh, one of the key challenges of this current COVID-19 effect uh, has been uh, to try and steer uh, a price forecast for the platinum group metals, uh, given the magnitude of the demand shock uh, suffered initially by the Chinese automotive industry and subsequently by uh, both uh, Indian, European, uh, North American, and of course uh, Japanese uh, uh, auto manufacturers. At this stage, I think it would be fair to say that uh, only uh, a, a slowly restarting Chinese automotive uh, sector and uh, Korea uh, are managing to maintain uh, production. And yet, uh, prices for palladium and rhodium have remained remarkably resilient. I think this highlights uh, two very important uh, themes in our investment strategy. Where you have a very concentrated level of supply and where the risk to that supply either uh, anticipated or in the case of the PGMs actual, given the lockdown effects uh, of what is happening in South Africa, supplemented by closures in Canada and, and, and North America, uh, where you have that as an offset to a major demand shock, I think the palladium and rhodium prices are telling you you can still have uh, resilience in the price. If you contrast that with the base metals where I started, you haven't uh, as yet seen uh, anything like the magnitude, particularly in the refined end of the market, of capacity closures that match uh, the extent of demand destruction. And that contrast is really an important uh, theme in our investment uh, strategy. You must be in uh, those commodities where supply risk is material, where demand destruction offsets uh, from supply or from recovery in China uh, in terms of demand in particular uh, can protect you uh, against the uncertainties uh, that confront us all uh, in, the, in the coming weeks and months. So, Ritesh, uh, that's all I wanted to say by way of introduction to the report and our strategy. I'm uh, happy to hand back to you now. Yep, uh, thanks, thanks a lot uh, for uh, a great comment on uh, commodity content. Misha, uh, I think uh, you can make uh, an announcement Q&A. Uh, probably I'll take the first question after that. Thank you very much. We will now begin the question and answer session. Anyone who wishes to ask a question, you can press star and one on their touchscreen cell phone. If you wish to remove yourself in the question queue, you can press star and two. Participants are requested to use handset for asking a question. Ladies and gentlemen, we will wait for a moment while the questions will assembled. Okay. Hi, uh, can I go over to the first question? Sure. Hello. Sure, you can go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, you did indicate 
about uh, our cautious stance on base metals, and uh, you also did indicate that most of the commodities are uh, well penetrated into the cost curve. Uh, so my question over here is, uh, currency depreciation is risk. Uh, I uh, just wanted to understand uh, any specific currencies uh, which the monitoring uh, and the corresponding commodities wherein we see more risk on the of the placement uh, and consequently on the commodity prices. Yeah. Okay. Look, I think um, thermal coal is definitely one uh, where I'm watching. Uh, very closely. Uh, I did, I think, allude to uh, the currencies uh, that are uh, particularly uh, notable in this respect, uh, the Australian dollar, South African rand, uh, the uh, Colombian uh, peso. You could probably add the Canadian dollar to uh, a coal price uh, uh, watch list, and of course the uh, South African rand. Now, all of them have already uh, recorded very significant drops. Um, They do appear to be stabilizing uh, a little bit at this point, but uh, I think uh, the risk has to be that uh, we see um, some further easing in uh, these producer currencies if... uh, the demand outlook for their basket of uh, commodities uh, deteriorates, and I think also the the combination of these currencies and uh, energy prices is is particularly significant in those mining industries where bulk mining is uh, obviously uh, particularly uh, important. So thermal coal is right at the top of my list, I have to say. because of the currency uh, effects on, on the cost curve. I think there is some uh, associated uh, risk in terms of the uh, contestable seaborne market for metallurgical coal. Uh, the Indonesian rupiah is obviously uh, an imp- a very important element uh, that I, I should have added to the, uh, the group on thermal coal, but uh, it's also a currency that I've had uh, along with the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar to uh, the metallurgical coal complex and, of course, the uh, um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Rupiah, uh, sorry, the peso. So, um, those, uh, the two seaborne metallurgical and thermal coal markets uh, in particular, I think we are obviously we should be monitoring, and we are uh, the risks from uh, the Australian dollar and the Brazilian uh, real to the seaborne iron ore uh, cost curve. I think uh, on the basis of um, flexing tests that we did for the report that we published. We've already seen an almost $10 a ton fall in the marginal cost support for the contestable seaborne market, that is uh, the seaborne market plus domestic uh, China. Uh, So uh, that is pretty material. The majority of that is in the non-Chinese part of that contestable market, but uh, it is... uh, clearly uh, related to currency and, again, energy uh, price effects. I think the gold market uh, is clearly another one. The spread of gold production is wide, so uh, it would be uh, wrong uh, to cast, like, try and uh, identify too many, but clearly uh, the Russian ruble is important in this respect, as is uh, the renminbi. But of course, the renminbi um, uh, Chinese producers do not deliver into the international market. One important change for the gold market, though, has been that the Russian central bank has stepped back from delivering into, uh, from purchasing domestic supplies, and is allowing domestic Russian gold producers to, to deliver into the international market. So that does become an important consideration, I think, uh, for uh, for this whole uh, 
scenario in terms of uh, the risks to cost curve support from further currency developments. Um, obviously, in the copper market, uh, it's the Chilean uh, peso and the uh, Peruvian currencies in particular that, that, that are important. Uh, I'm sure I could go through the full list of the base metals, but I, I would be covering some similar ground. Uh, in zinc, of course, the Australian dollar is important, the Canadian uh, dollar also important, uh, aluminium, uh, we've obviously got the Gulf uh, states, we've got uh, uh, obviously uh, a range uh, of other uh, considerations, and most notably uh, what's happening in China too, but currency I think is less important uh, to uh, the uh, aluminium and aluminum cost uh, uh, curve support at this point after the adjustments that have been made, probably than the bauxite uh, cost curve, and uh, obviously if we see further falls in the uh, uh, exchange rate from, from Guinea in particular, uh, then uh, and in Australia, uh, there will be more bauxite uh, uh, supply support in this environment, which won't be great for prices either. Uh, that, that's quite useful. Uh, my second is I did uh, elaborate upon iron ore uh, being quite resilient uh, over the last uh, couple of months, but uh, a few quarters as well. Uh, but if we had to put into context the uh, scrap to ore multiplier, uh, which is currently uh, the significant uh, deviation from historic values of say 2.25, 2.5x. Uh, how should one look at it? Uh, should one expect uh, ore prices to come down or scrap prices to more? Uh, that's, that's my second question. I personally think, given that um, scrap has been um, very difficult to access uh, in China, um, and therefore the hot metal ratio of blast furnace steel mills there, has risen uh, quite significantly uh, as a consequence, as well as seeing the rising market share of the EAF uh, producers at the expense of last furnace producers. Um, an easing in scrap restriction um, should actually enable, um, as, as lockdowns progressively are rolled off, um, and this is not exclusive to China, but uh, I'm focusing my comments on, on, on China because I know uh, that market uh, better than, uh, uh, than, than, than elsewhere, and, and you would know better than me the situation in, in India, but it does seem to me that EAF restarts and the easing in scrap restrictions um, will enable the electric art furnace producers to come back uh, progressively and lift demand for scrap so that even if the iron ore ratio um, uh, becomes less favourable to iron versus scrap, it will do so in the context of uh, stable pricing or resilient pricing for iron ore, uh, which implies a, a rise in, in, in scrap pricing in, in, in that environment at least closer to that uh, longer-term ratio that you talked about. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, so, the premium that we have seen on the ore prices, uh, is it a reflection of the supply side response uh, from the miners which indicated is around 18-20 million tons? Uh, or should one look at it from a demand perspective wherein most of the steel production in China is uh, lost, uh, is still small? Uh, should we look at it? Uh, is it more of a supply phenomenon or is it uh, more of a demand thing? I think initially it was definitely a demand-driven phenomenon because uh, I don't think, given the magnitude of the demand shock in China in February, anyone would have expected the degree of resilience in blast furnace production that we saw. I mean, the national utilization rate of China's steel mills was uh, 74 to 76% in January.
January, February, which is remarkable. Um, the, uh, we're just below their long-run average. It's now around 78%. So the resilience in derived demand for um, uh, seaborne iron ore, I think, or and indeed domestic iron ore in China, was a key part of the initial resilience story. Uh, I think the fact that uh, financing conditions were easing uh, helped with the decision to maintain uh, what in the circumstances were high levels of utilisation rates, as did the, the near complete absence of the electric furnace producers. So uh, there was a free kick, if you like, in market share, and there was uh, an easing in the cost burden of rising inventory levels. And I think the steel mills were largely encouraged to, to take that route uh, so that they were in a position to uh, meet recovering industrial production that uh, clearly the government anticipated from the second half of March onwards. And they uh, were in a position to therefore also anticipate uh, that inventory levels that were built up in that uh, period from the end of January through to the end of March would start declining. And I think that expectation has proven correct. So I still think some of the resilience is clearly due to the persistently high level of blast furnace operating rates uh, in China. But at the margin, supply has really been important. Uh, it was important inside China in the first quarter because we saw a very significant reduction in Chinese uh, production of uh, domestic production of iron ore. Some of that is a seasonal uh, phenomenon anyway uh, because of the cold weather period and the Lunar New Year holiday effect. But of course it was greatly magnified by the COVID-19 restrictions. So uh, there's definitely been uh, a domestic supply uh, issue and in the first uh, part of the middle of uh, the first quarter, both Brazil and Australia lost about 20 million tonnes combined of seaborne capacity due to uh, weather-related uh, events. And Canada also um, suffered uh, from uh, both strike action and cold weather, uh, some small loss of export capacity also. So uh, supply was a tightening effect in the seaborne market. It was quite a major effect in the domestic Chinese pellet market. And we've now got other producers uh, who've added to that tensioning effect on the supply side. But I do think, uh, surprising though it may seem, this is more about a demand story than it is about a supply story. Uh, just to take forward, if one had to understand the premium for iron ore and cooking coal uh, in China markets uh, as compared to the global seaborne or ex-China markets, uh, does it still create a premium? I, 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 to my say, I think cooking coal locally uh, in China used to be at $20, $30 premium, and I think it was impacting the cost for the local steamers over there. Uh, and this could be, I think, potentially be on back of some import restrictions. Uh, I think unsaid import restrictions from the Australian coal. Uh, any highlights here on the local uh, premium for both iron ore and uh, cooking coal, taking into consideration uh, the local supply as well? Uh, thank you. Yeah, sure. And um, look, on, on coating coal, uh, I think you're right that the domestic market premium for uh, metallurgical coal, uh, which is generally speaking of lower quality than the seaborne uh, imports, uh, has come down uh, but uh, hasn't been completely uh, eroded. I think it's come down because uh, I'm now looking at um, the CFR 
premium hard coating coal price in um, uh, China on a CFR basis is $141.77 today uh, compared to um, 130 FOB from uh, Dalrymple Bay. Uh, So there's a $11 freight component, if you like, on that uh, CFR price. That compares to $153 a tonne free on uh, uh, truck in a, a similar area of, uh, of North China. So uh, there still is uh, a noticeable domestic premium despite the quality, uh, but um, the Chinese steel mills, as you rightly say, um, are uh, compelled to take that when there are port uh, restrictions. I think the premium is coming down, though, because what I understand is that there are some significant supply, uh, stocks of high-grade metallurgical coke uh, which are available to the glass furnace steelmakers, and they are drawing those down uh, and thereby forcing the domestic premium uh, on a on a on a on on rail or on truck cost basis at least uh, to come come down and narrow the gap with the uh, seaborne CFR price. So I think that will continue until such time as the reduction in coke stocks in, in, in China uh, reaches a level that uh, they, they need to, to be replenished once more. Uh, and I think that uh, that argues to me that uh, there will be a uh, some period of softness both for domestic producers of hard coking coal and exporters into China while that coke stock uh, gets uh, gets normalised. And uh, I don't think we're very far away from seeing an end of that from what I understand, but uh, it could well last another month before it is. That's, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. We would request the participants to choose the starring one to ask a question. The next question is from the line of Aditya from Investec. Please go ahead. Aditya, you can go ahead, please. Uh, hello, hi. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Hi, Dido. Thank you very much for hi. your time. Uh, so quickly, so I just wanted to ask more on the crude. Um, um, so, uh, just if you can just give us some thoughts on the recent production cuts in crude, and um, also uh, how do you see this uh, frenzy of market share competition, mainly by South of Saudi Arabia, um, settling in the near future? Thanks. Pleasure. Look, I think the key problem uh, in the uh, crude market has clearly been the implosion of demand uh, on a scale, as the IAEA said just yesterday, that cannot possibly be matched by uh, even record levels of uh, production cuts announced over the last weekend. The reality is, though, I think that those cuts are... uh, something of a smoke and mirrors game because uh, firstly with Mexico being allowed to hold out for uh, a lesser proportionate share of cuts they didn't even make the 10 million uh, barrels a day target that uh, I think everyone viewed as as a minimum the other uh, cuts from Canada, from the US, from Norway, uh, possibly uh, uh, from Brazil and uh, the UK, uh, i.e. the non-OPEC plus group, they are not mandated. They're only dependent on uh, the ability of uh, very weak prices to force closures or uh, on 
the inability of shale producers in particular to service their debts. So I think it's by no means certain that the anticipated extra four to five million barrels in cuts uh, from uh, the other players, so to speak, will themselves be um, fully uh, forthcoming. And I think the market is rightfully sceptical uh, about the mathematics, if you like, of this deal uh, for both of those reasons. I think the other reason that uh, the market is rightfully sceptical is in the face of the magnitude of demand destruction that has occurred in the crude market uh, and the uh, accompanying uh, implosion in the price, firstly from this very ill-judged uh, uh, struggle for market share between Saudi Arabia and, 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 and Russia, uh, but also I think from just the sheer scale of demand uh, destruction, that that combination, which has taken prices below $20 a barrel, is, I think, unfortunately now a standing incentive if there was to be any rally in the price for even the OPEC Plus group to cheat on its own uh, commitments, uh, even during the two-month period in which it is meant to apply. The other problem, I think, about this uh, arrangement is, firstly, that it doesn't apply until May. It only applies for two months and then gets tapered down uh, over the remainder of the year. In other words, I personally think this supply response has been wholly inadequate to uh, the scale of demand destruction uh, that has taken place. And I think that um, the strategy of Saudi Arabia in particular in seeking to go for market share was partly informed by the knowledge that even if they had done a deal uh, prior to uh, with Russia uh, and uh, actually preserved some uh, temporary strength in the price, the price still would have fallen away underneath them and therefore they had to go for shock and awe type of response uh, to really drive home to the higher cost producers uh, the magnitude of the risk uh, that they were all running. Now, uh, I'm hopeful that demand recovers in the second half of the year, uh, but it's, it's got to come a long way back to be supportive uh, uh, of a price uh, well above uh, 30 to uh, $40 a barrel. And at this stage, uh, the continued shutdown of the aero, aerospace industry and the automotive uh, industry, uh, if not worldwide, then you know, on a very dramatic scale, is, I think, uh, highlighting just how, how long a period we're in for of... Uh, of, of wheat pricing because uh, simply no amount of cuts uh, will, will, will do the job uh, other than a near shutdown of virtually all of the high cost uh, uh, producers and I don't think for the governments of those countries in OPEC uh, that is uh, a viable political option because so much government revenue depends on it. So my assessment of this is that we're in for a very tough road in the oil and gas uh, industry. Um, we're going to see uh, bankruptcies in the shale industry for sure. We've already seen one uh, and we'll certainly see more. Uh, supply will eventually uh, be driven out of the market to some degree. Demand will uh, slowly come back, but it's going to be a painful and protracted uh, road in my view. So for industries dependent on input costs of crude and natural gas, um, 
this is actually uh, a pretty favourable time. Uh, thanks, that's very helpful. Just one follow-up. So, what what is the forecast for oil, oil price for 2020 and 2021? Well, we uh, our oil team actually use the uh, forward curve for uh, the oil market. So, as you can imagine, it's uh, come down pretty uh, dramatically. When we published the report, our crude uh, oil price forecast was. 37 for the first half and 29 for the second. But given the forward curve has fallen uh, further since then, uh, clearly 37 is going to be too high for the first half. And I think bearing in mind that that's an amalgam of historic prices year-to-date plus uh, a diminishing forecast for the remainder of the first half, I, I would say something with a two in front of it towards the higher end of, uh, of $20 is, is a much more realistic price. So that would give us an average price for the year uh, somewhere between, say, 28 and and uh, $30 uh, a barrel for the whole year. Understood. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. If there are no further questions, I would now like to hand the conference over to Mr. Ritesh Shah for closing comments. Yeah, hi, Shah. Thanks for this. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Peter and Hunter for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, for investors, if you have any specific questions, uh, please drop me a mail and uh, we'll uh, try to have answers from Peter and Hunter on the same. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you all for joining the conference call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. On behalf of Investment Capital Services, that concludes this conference. Thank you for joining us and you may not disconnect your hands.